Support for today's show comes from Night Call, because I want to tell you about it. It is a new podcast beyond that which is known to man. It is the meeting place between alien documentaries and Frasier. It is a cross-country conversation about the weird, wicked, and wonderful world of pop and internet culture between three Grantland alumni and friends, Emily Yoshida, Molly Lambert, and Tess Lynch. R.I.P. Grantland. What a great website. Anyway, it's a brand new podcast from Audio Boom called Night Call, and it's available now on Apple Podcasts and all other listening destinations. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than you think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also... Fresh off a three-day streak of meditating, your boy Schmitty sat in a quiet place and examined the stream of his own thoughts without judging them. If you can't tell from the silly way I said that, I'm kind of kidding about bragging about caring for my own brain three times. I'm also kind of not kidding. Yeah, yeah, kidding and not kidding. It's like the movie Inception for sincerity. Anyway, meditation is my second favorite example of the American, uh, you'd call it Western culture I grew up with being real strange. My favorite example of it being strange is those car dealership contests where they make people keep their hand on a vehicle. Like, what? You know, come on. Anyway, our approach to meditation is that silly, I think, because meditation in various forms is thousands of years old. It's also pretty straightforward. And yet, not only was I not encouraged to meditate as a kid or older, I was told that the simple mental health practice of meditation was silly. You needed to sit funny and chant and and do things that were presented as things comedic characters did. In actuality, meditation is amazing and also normal. And isn't that fascinating? Isn't being alive fascinating? Because our culture adopts many practices that actively discourage us from caring for our own brains. That's right, brains, an organ all of us have. And my guest today is a fantastic thinker on this issue. He is your pal and mine, Jason Pargin, who writes for the site as David Wong. Jason's been low-key covering the mental health beat for Cracked forever, and we're going to get into all the weird ways mental health care gets ignored, even in an amazing time in history. Like, my country is capable of miracles like spaceflight and telecommunications and Baconators, yet our approach to mental health is straight out of the Stone Age. You know, actually, I I take that back because that is unfair to Stone Age people. As thinkers like Kurt Vonnegut have argued, tribal societies tend to care for each other's hearts and minds pretty well. They pay attention to each other. We're going to talk about ways our society maybe doesn't and things you can do about it. Also, I can tell you right up top, social media features heavily in the topics today. Those guys are kind of the Bond villains of our era, and not just the giants like Facebook. Even little fresh new companies like Snapchat are building Bond villain layers. Here's part of a piece in the Daily Beast last month about Snapchat talking about their plans for the future. Quote, The company is preparing to move into a brand new 300,000 square foot office in Santa Monica. The building is a pitch black cube-like structure with giant black reflective windows. Honestly, it looks like the NSA, a former employee joked. End quote. Holy cow. So watch your 16s who are, who are too cool for Facebook and Twitter. They use Instagram and Snapchat. Anyway, let's get on with the show, which I'm happy to add includes actionable ways you can safeguard your own brain. Please sit back or sit however feels right to you, my friend. Lounge on a fainting couch, why don't you? Anyway, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with the one and only Jason Pargin. 
I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We are joined on the phone by Jason Pargin, who writes for the site as David Wong. Hello, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm feeling good. My mental health is tippy top. And I'm so excited to talk about uh, all of the ways we can work on that with uh, everyone in the world, and especially, I feel like, in our culture in America. The first question is, if your mental health was not tip-top, would you know sitting here right now? I mostly just felt like saying it's tippy-top. It's probably average to slightly above average, below average. I don't really know. We have been... Yeah, emailing and writing to each other a little bit before this, it's really, really hard to measure that. It's not like I can go step on a scale and say, oh, my mental health is a six. Great. You know, it's very uh, nebulous. Yeah. And this is why right away it may, it may sound like we're doing an episode about mental illness, which would seem to not apply to the 40% of our listeners who do not currently have a diagnosed mental illness, but really not. It's about mental health and the way the world is ruining it in subtle ways that doesn't have anything to do with you being sick right now in the same way that if you sit down and eat an entire pizza that's bad for your health but it won't give you a disease when our physical health we think of it as in terms of everything you're doing um whereas with mental health it's like it's like you either have two categories either you're normal or else you're you're in an institution or taking medication, but that's not really what, to me, the real problem is. My my whole deal is, what we're going to talk about today, is that we're very bad at prevention and just managing the things that are ruining how we feel, even if you could pass a, do you have a mental illness test? Because we talk about nebulous things like happiness and peace of mind but those are so like unscientific that I think it just seems generic. Like the phrase happy birthday doesn't really mean anything. It's just, <laughs> it's just a word. So if you start talking about it in more of a scientific term, like how, how are you feeling? Like what's your mental state? I think that's better because it should be in some ways a quantifiable thing. Your brain is an organism but we still don't think of it that way. And we are going to go over a whole bunch of evidence that the modern world is terrible for your mental health. I knew we were going to talk about this. And even as I thought about my mental health just now, I was very black and white about it. Like you said, it's either, oh, something terrible that's a full-on illness is happening or you're completely fine. When in actuality, I just drove through LA traffic for about 50 minutes to get here to do this. And that's not totally fine. Like that's stressful. You know, it's also not going to kill me. I made it, you know, but it's something that is like many things in our day and in our life, something that is worth just being aware of and thinking like, hmm, how do I feel now that I swerved around things 10 times? A comparison that I feel like helps a lot of people if you think of the world as being full of invisible but angry ghosts that are continually trying to enter your body through your <laughs> butthole, that in the moment they're entering, it may seem fine, but there's a cumulative effect that is not evident in the moment. That's the issue in the same way that 
in the moment that you sat down and ate an entire pizza, it seemed fantastic. It's 20 years of doing that every day that it starts to weigh on you. Like it's, and that's, that's the category of mental health. That's why mental health problems sneak up on us so much. And it's why we're so bad at dealing with them as a society, because the individual things that accumulate actually kind of feel pretty good in the moment sometimes things like conflict yeah well especially the example of bad physical health move eating an entire pizza i feel like we could each sit and list off a hundred bad physical health decisions pretty easily as far as mental health what what sneaks up more what's more of an insidious thing mental health is declining worldwide at a time when physical health is pretty much better than ever lifespan is longer you know, there's been advances in medication. We know more about how to treat diseases, things like that. And at that same time, for instance, the global suicide rate has increased by about 60% over the last 45 years. In the U.S., suicides are at a 30-year high. Substance abuse, everyone has probably by now heard about the opioid epidemic. All of these related behaviors that are tied to depression, mental health, like people trying to self-medicate, all of that stuff seems to be going up at a time when, as a culture, we should be really good at treating everything, right? Because we have more data than ever before. We have more advanced techniques than ever before. Access to healthcare in general is better than it's ever been, even you know, regardless of issues with health, health insurance, things like that. So the fact that the mental health numbers have declined at that rate during that same span is actually kind of shocking. Like that, that, that really shouldn't be possible. And everything that you would think would be obvious, like, well, it's, it's because of the economy or it's because of violence or all of the things that it's usually not that. It, it has to do with a bunch of different factors the first one we can get into is like the rise of social media and the impact that has on people and just general behavior that is very poorly understood. The habit, for instance, of going online every day and filtering your headlines by how much they outrage you, <laughs> they can put you in a lab and hook you up to machines and show, oh, his blood pressure went up for 20 minutes after reading that headline. But the fact that I get up every morning and start my day by intentionally inflating my blood pressure by reading headlines, <laughs> the mental health effect of doing that for 10 straight years, that's never been studied. How could you study it? Spreading information this way in this lifestyle has not existed long enough to study it. So a lot of what we're going to talk about is speculation because it has to be. There's no, the data so far is very, very limited, but we can, we can discuss why it may be making people anxious based on the fact that you and I both have been using social media every single day since they invented it, but right. explaining like, oh, well, this type of behavior leads to long-term depression. We don't have that yet. That is, in fact, the problem when we've touched on the subject on the site, it gets a very negative reaction because it just sounds like get off my lawn. You, you kids don't <laughs> know what it's like to live in the real world. What studies they've done, Instagram ranks the worst of all of the platforms. And this is based on surveys of teenagers, like which, which one, which platform most makes you anxious about your body, about your lifestyle makes you feel the most inferior 
and Instagram comes in. Probably, I guess, because it's almost the most superficial one. You know, Instagram is about presenting a lifestyle, and you've got these perfect people with perfect bodies and using high-end products and living these lifestyles with, with these perfectly clean houses or whatever, and you're going to compare yourself to to that. And so yeah. the pressure to like maintain it and then you put a photo of yourself out there and it doesn't get any likes. It's like, you know, when you and I write an article or make a podcast, if nobody listens to this podcast, we may take that a little personally, but <laughs> this is our job. It's like we kind of got paid either way. If you put out a photo of your new hair style and then it gets no likes, that's a judgment of you personally. Like that's your yeah. personal, you have failed as a 14 year old girl. You have failed to do the thing to give a good presentation of yourself. So you have to take it personally. And that is a pressure that's taking the normal pressure teenagers feel and amplifying it a hundredfold. And it's a corporation and a bunch of very wealthy venture capitalists cashing in on that insecurity. Because after all, if you put a photo out there that doesn't get very many likes, what are you going to be motivated to do? You're motivated to post something else. You're motivated to come back. You're motivated to keep, right? Because you're trying to build up your, your friend count. Like you have a score associated with you as a person. The most recent study I saw that was done at San Diego State University, basically what they found was that since the 90s, as the usage and availability of screen devices, whether it's a smartphone, you know, a laptop, a tablet, as you move through the eras, as those went up, teens' self-reporting of happiness went down. The levels plummeted after 2012. That was the year that those devices became pervasive, when they crossed 50%. And then when you hone in on it, basically, the more time they spend on screen happiness goes down. The kids that were the happiest spent only about an hour a day staring at a screen. Only an hour. I spent an hour on a screen before I'm out of bed. That's not a joke. And so I can't sit here. You know, I want people to be clear. My job requires me to be looking at a screen every minute that I'm awake. I There's no teenager who spends more time looking at a screen than, than I do. So I am somewhat familiar with this. <laughs> And, and I assume you are too. Yeah, big time. Well, yeah, and especially having it so handy. In a previous episode, we cited a Pew study that said 70-something percent of Americans have smartphones. And I'd also imagine that's a higher percentage for fans of our site. So I, I think everyone can relate who's listening. As for why would screen time decrease your happiness? Because, again, from a cranky old person's point of view, saying you're spending all the time staring at a screen is idiotic. It's like, no, I'm not staring at a screen. I'm communicating with my friends. I'm reading about what's going on in the world. I'm staying in touch with entertainment and everything I'm interested in. I'm learning, you know, that's like telling somebody reading a newspaper, wow, you spend all your time looking at that wood pulp. This is is the Wall Street Journal. It's, It's a little bit more... I don't want to act like there's something magical about the screen that depresses you. It's not sending waves into your brain that affect your hormones, although it may also be doing that for all I know. It's <laughs> it's the way that 
it forces you to interact with the world. And we're going to stray into unscientific territory here because, again, this is very difficult to study. These devices have not existed for very long. The idea of a human using one of these devices their entire life, that has never occurred. We, we can't tell you the effect of using this over the long term because there is no such thing as long term when you're talking about an iPhone. They were they came around in 2007 or whatever year it was. Before that, if you were talking about a laptop, you still had to be at a location where you could get it out. Once, once it became something you could put in your pocket, the whole game changed completely. So where now Instagram or social media used to be a thing you logged into, now you're just, it's always there with you. In addition to social media being more on top of us than ever before, even the things we already had are more on top of us. Like you mentioned, gaming in general as being something that you as a youth were like, yeah, don't tell me not to be into gaming. Even gaming is completely different now. Like before it was just you and Mario and whoever else happened to be in your basement. Now it's everyone else on the online network that you have to be on to run the game on your console and who are talking to you as they shoot bullets at you. It's a completely more social, more different screen than it ever was. And it replaces social interaction that you otherwise would have had in some other way. Personally, this is me. I think that a big, big chunk of why there's a long-term detriment to social media is that it you evolve to communicate a certain way, right? Face-to-face. So you have the reason why in movies when they do CG, a CGI face, like in the, the Force Awakens when they did the horrible... A CGI... Oh, Princess Leia at the end? Like yeah. the young Princess Leia? The reason that looks so weird to you is that your brain evolved as a facial recognition supercomputer. Like every microscopic <laughs> twitch of the eye, things that are not perceptible, even to an artist rendering it frame by frame using the best technology, it looks ghoulish to us because they still can't quite get it. Because... The things you're reading on a face, when you're reading emotions on a face, when you're reading the mood of a person, it's truly microscopic. Because again, our entire evolution, thousands and thousands of generations, people succeeded in society and passed on their genes by becoming great at reading the mood of another primate. Because you can sit in a silent room full of people and feel a mood. You can walk into a room in which an argument occurred a few minutes ago. You missed the argument, but you can walk into the quiet room and say, what happened? Because you feel it sure. hanging in the air. The people who believe in extrasensory perception, things like that, this is why they believe in it. It's not ESP. It's not a sixth sense. It's their brain being so tuned to what people, their mannerisms and things like that, that your conscious mind doesn't even realize you're doing it. So much of our social lives and interactions is based on getting that kind of feedback. Not verbal, but nonverbal. The way they behave around you. The subtle things, right. like the way you carry yourself. Even if people are afraid to say anything to you, you can tell by the way they acted that what you did was wrong, you stepped out of bounds. When you take those interactions and put them over Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, 
a, a, an online a multiplayer game, if that's where your social circle is, it fundamentally changes. Yeah, and you had added there was a, some studies about how Facebook work, works, which I realize the youth has stopped using Facebook. So this already is the reason we're going to cite Facebook in this episode <laughs> is because there's a lot of data on it. Like right. there's just more because it's been around longer. So please forgive us for referencing the old fashioned. <laughs> a lot of the stuff holds true, if not more so for things like Snapchat. The mental health toll of Facebook and exactly, they kind of dig into why. Uh, with all these social media companies, they are just starting to, in particular in Facebook's case, because it's so massive and monolithic, they're like just starting to own up to, yes, obviously we impact the way people's brains work. Like a year or two ago, they probably would have just been saying, we connect people, the end, just great. And then this past uh, December, Facebook on their own blog about their own company they put out a piece that said, hey, we do see that there are some mental health downsides to Facebook. Like, we do see that. But then they couched it in a series of different studies by various people. And Facebook's statement about Facebook's mental health impact was, hey, Facebook is bad for your mental health if you use it passively, right? If you're just scrolling along, not doing anything, oh, yeah, of course, it's bad for you. The way Facebook is good for you and improves your mental health is if you post a lot, if you share a lot, if you do a lot on the platform, which to me seems like they're just trying to get people to use their site more and be more active on it, which, as we said at the beginning, has always been their only actual goal is to just get people to be on Facebook a lot. I feel like they're acknowledging the elephant in the room in order to make more money, <laughs> and I don't love it. Yes, and let me explain exactly why what they said is just total nonsense. Yeah, please do. They're acknowledging that reading things on Facebook makes you feel terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Which you would think would be a crisis for their company, but no. But the act of sharing things they say helps you <laughs> it's true that having a place to vent is good it's true that having yeah. a place to express yourself is good those are that's indisputable the reason people go on social media like the reason you use it as far as i can tell it comes down to about three categories like there's three categories of content that captures your attention. One showing you that your friends are all doing much better than you <laughs> because of <laughs> their pictures. You know, people only share the, like they put the most positive spin on it's their vacation photos. It's them with their beautiful children. It's, it's not showing the ugly parts Unless they're showing you the ugly parts to show you how dramatic their life is, right? Like their life is a, a big grand drama and so much more interesting than yours. Right, right. Two, giving you news of the world that specifically is there to outrage you. Not even important news like, you know, oh, hey, the new budget bill is going to impact your taxes or your, your health care. But things like, video shocking video of child being bullied in texas will make your blood boil like literally promising this will make your blood boil this will make you unhappy the rest of the day here come come watch it it's it's misery porn 
It does not impact your life in any way. It's not a bill you can vote on. It's not a charity you can give to. It's just, here, watch this video of this outrageous, horrible thing happening. Or three, which is a corollary of that, hey, here's some people who are fighting. Come join it. Like, here's the latest controversy, whether it's among your friends, whether it's in your circle, whether it's a celebrity who's said something dumb. Let's go yell at this celebrity for telling this bad, this offensive joke. Or there's a bitter dispute and you, you need to now come take a side. It really seems to distill it down to a series of different ways to feel bad. <laughs> right. And even the argument that, well, yeah, but it also gives you a place to express yourself and that makes you feel better. What you have in the beginning may have been a place to express yourself to feel better and feel like, oh, I've got a platform, which everyone should have a platform. I've had one my whole adult life. I, it's great. Trust me. Yeah. It quickly becomes a job, a, a job that involves maintaining an image right? Maintaining a reputation, maintaining, like presenting and filtering your life in exactly the right way. That is a, an actual toll on your time and energy and levels of anxiety. That's measurable. Like you can go look at how many hours a day the average person spends on social media. A lot of that may feel satisfying in the moment, but a lot of it they're doing because they've been trained by the software to do it. So the sat yeah. the satisfaction is the satisfaction of of eating a piece of candy that it's again in that those two seconds it feels good, but it's doing nothing for you because it's it's been engineered like a piece of candy. Like it's it's been designed for the exact same purpose. It doesn't nourish you at all. That makes you want to come back to it. I get the sense everyone is in that boat too. Like I think I used to just think that it was mostly comedians and professionals like us who were dealing with that. Like I, uh, when I lived in New York, someone I knew who had a pretty big Twitter following taught a workshop at a comedy theater on how to tweet better. Like the entire workshop is not not about like performing or or joke writing itself. It was just hey, here's how to make your Twitter account more optimal to be a more popular comedian. That's all we're going to do. And I thought it was like, oh, people, just people like us where there's some perceived professional reason to be doing that. We must be the ones <laughs> like obsessing over it. And everyone else is using it casually or a little bit more or not. But it doesn't seem to be that way. And especially on these ones like Instagram and Snapchat that the youths are actually using, not like Facebook and Twitter. It, it really does seem to be something that, like you say, is work is a job on some mental level. People are like, I need to do more of my publishing on me.com slash Instagram, to put it crudely as a, a URL. Right. And again, you take all of the normal pressures of being a teenager where you're trying to find your own personality. You're trying to you're testing different boundaries of things. And it's all amplified many times over. So like the consequences, like when you think of the most embarrassing things you did when you were a teenager and the idea of those things being shared globally and permanently, like there's a permanent <laughs> record of every, of every dumb thing you said is stunning to me. Like I can't imagine living that life. Like the pressure 
of learning how to interact with people, of learning how social circles work and just working through that. And then instead, on top of that, you have the type of pressure that used to only be felt by, like you said, by professionals, by, by celebrities, people who chose that lifestyle and saying that this is a requirement now. And this is a quantifiable thing. There's a mental load you're having to exert. And it's not just time. It's in energy. It's in thinking of how you're presenting yourself. When you're a teenager, you know, there's at some point when you, you want to try new things. You want to try a different hairstyle, different clothes, you know, like, like kind of experimenting to find out who you are. How you're able to do this when you're doing it in front of like 2,000 Instagram followers. And yeah. that number is, I don't know if people realize, like you can, if, if you have teenagers who use Instagram, maybe you'll go in there and see that it's only the kids in their high school. It's more likely it's hundreds of people because it's people they've encountered doing everything, playing online games or just on following other people. Like they all have 2,000, 3,000, however many you know, followers on there. So it is an audience. Right. If, if it was a bunch of people all in one room, it would be a performance. It wouldn't be a, a coffee shop where you're, you're having a conversation over coffee. It would be you're, you're on stage and <laughs> right. the average person is not built for that. Yeah. In hindsight, I am thinking about that or like early funny internet video of star Wars kid, where it's a kid running around his garage to Star Wars music, just pretending to have a lightsaber and enjoying himself. Like that was a Black Mirror episode and we didn't really register it at the time. Like that was, oh, now if a kid just tries to express joy and like have a good time, there's a chance it will be laughed at on YouTube. And the chance will escalate in an increasing way forever because there will be more and more cameras and phones and more platforms for this to live on. The 15-year-old kid who makes like a homophobic or racist joke on Instagram, I would say the same thing, that that kid has a right to be 15 years old. That kid, like the whole thing when you're a teenager is you're trying to get attention. You want to shock people. Like you, you think of the grossest jokes you can imagine and whatever society tells you you can't joke about, that's what you joke about because you're a teenager. Like you're trying to, that's the whole idea is you were a kid before and now you're trying to push the boundaries and then you get pushback and you grow up and realize, oh, that's not acceptable behavior. Now I have become an adult. Now that gets like frozen in time and you can go like viral as like high school kid caught drawing swastika on, <laughs> on, you know, their wall. And it's like, man, when I was that age, like you joked about Hitler and stuff because it, you knew it was inappropriate to joke about. You'd made jokes about dead babies. You made jokes about AIDS. Like that was just give me anything that seems offensive. You know, that's why we loved South Park, you know, that which came along, you know, I was in college at the time, but it was like, yeah, this is me. This is the way this, these are the jokes I, I like to tell. And then you hopefully at age 40 are not still saying those things. And also that room, like that room to just be dumb and make mistakes, it keeps shrinking and shrinking. And it's partly because these social media companies are always trying to grow and they're also multiplying. Like there's not going to be a point where we have 
enough social media platforms and everyone else is like, well, I'm not going to start a new one. Let's just use these. Like, uh, there are huge ones now that are relatively recent and they will be replaced by new ones and new ones. And because all these social media companies, their whole financial value is based on the concept that they will endlessly grow and they will endlessly gain users. And like, there's a story that came out from the Daily Beast where they reported on Snapchat and Snapchat is a company that it turns out is really, really weirdly private about all of their numbers. Like uh, the Daily Beast scoop was that they had a couple of months of Snapchat's metrics of just how many people use the different features, because otherwise it's very, very secret. Like they make employees not discuss what they're working on. There was a whole floor of their New York office that was secret and that most of the team of Snapchat couldn't go to. They taped over the cameras of their staff. It was a place where they tried to keep everything as internal as possible because the idea that Snapchat was always, always, always growing was the value of the company and it was the value of the stock options that they paid people in. And every social media company is like that. All of them want to be in as much of your life as possible. This brings it back to the original point. We have good data and good common sense saying that these are just rotten for your mental health, but you're not going to pass a law banning them, and we're not advocating that. It, it, that's not the way it works. The issue is that nobody ever banned pizza. We, we made them put a label on it, and then we established culturally what's a human amount of pizza to eat in one sitting before people right. become concerned about you. Like we've, we've gotten a, a, a you know, an idea <laughs> of, and, and when you eat too much pizza, your body will stop you at some point. Right. Mine much later than other people's, but at some point your body sends you signals. You're full. If you're sitting on your phone, scrolling through, outrage tweets for eight straight hours, you'll never get a signal from your body saying the same thing. Like you, whether you're consuming, however you measure media, you know, if, if a unit of media is one, whether you consume one or 10,000 of those in a day, it feels the same. Like there may be mild mental exhaustion, but if you sat there just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling through a bunch of stuff, you don't feel the toll of it in the moment, the way you do feel sore muscles if you're working yourself too hard, the way you do feel that you're out of breath if you're pushing yourself too hard, your brain doesn't give you back those same signals saying, hey, this stuff that you've ingested today is, it's too much. Right. If someone is sitting down browsing porn and they look at literally 400 images before they find the one they want. There's no feedback signal in the brain. That's like, you've actually made your opinion of women worse in the time you've been sitting here. Like, like long-term your ability to interact with women and how you see them and how you see their bodies that that has been harmed today because it felt good in the moment. And there's no point at which your brain is like, Oh, you're full. You're full of porn. Your brain's full of you've you've reached your porn limit for the, you know, you, you need to, yeah. to stop. It doesn't work like that. That's my position is that culturally 
in terms of setting limits, aside from like some hippie parents who will say like, well, no, I limit my kid to two hours of screen time a night, which is a very clumsy way to handle it. In terms of like learning what a moderate amount of media and screen time and social media is before it becomes unhealthy, there's nothing Right. There's nothing to go by in terms of guidelines, in terms of like asking, you can ask a hundred people, what do you consider an unhealthy amount of social media? 95 of them will just stare back at you blankly. They're like, what do you mean? Like a lot of them will say, no, nah, I don't use it at all. Or that's all garbage. But in terms of having a sense of where I can tell you how many pieces of pizza I eat, but I can't tell you how many hours of vlogs I can watch before I've, I've had too many. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. So that's my point is it a, we, it has a measurable effect on mental health and we know that, but B we are nowhere close as a society to getting to where we can get a sense of what a healthy usage of that stuff even looks like. You know, you evolved so that certain things are rare in nature. Like in nature, like pure sugar doesn't exist. You could come across a piece of fruit, but even the fruit we have now has been is engineered to be sweeter than what you would have run across in the wild. And things like our, our desire for fat and salt, like these are things that in nature you could get, but were difficult. Like getting the fat off an animal, you had to hunt it and then you got it once every few days. So the whole thing that junk food does is it takes things that would normally be rare in a human diet and distills it down to give it to you regularly. So, you know, we want sugar, you need glucose in your system so that they can pull the sugar out of sugar cane or corn syrup and distill it down to just that and then put it in whatever, candy, anything. And it releases, you know, chemicals in your brain that says, oh yeah, this is what you want. The rush you get from conflict or from outrage or from seeing an injustice. These are things that occur occurred rarely in the tribe. And therefore you had a strong response. You had a strong fight or flight response, a dopamine response an adrenaline response because, Oh, there's conflict and we must maintain order. So you have your, you know, your heart beats and your blood pressure goes up and you've got to go meet that conflict. What, Software does, whether you're talking about social media or games or whatever, is they found a way to trigger those same things only to give them to you every every minute, every few seconds. So you can scroll yeah. through Twitter and learn something new, hear a joke, you know, see an outrage, see something that upsets you, and get your heart racing and to keep feeding it to you the same as the sugar and to where suddenly before long, as with any addiction, you adjust to, to get to where you, you need that. And so now you're coming back and back and back. It's the same thing with validation in the tribe. You do something good and everyone applauds you and you, that feels good because of course it does because at surviving means making the rest of the tribe happy. You were built to want to win the approval of others or else they would let you starve. Like that's how it used to work. So yes, you need that. And so you have a social media platform that can give you a score that grants you that validation, give you thumbs up or likes or, or Instagram, whatever's it feels good in the moment, but long-term you now need it 
that's where the the harm comes in. And this is where if you asked Instagram, is your service harmful? They would say, no, we hooked up a teenager to a thing and they shared their photo. And when they got a like, pleasure chemicals came out on their brain. See this, it makes them happy. It's like, no, it made them happy in that moment. But we are going, we are finding out and we'll continue to find out over time that that among other things, this whole episode is not just about social media, but that, among other things, takes an invisible toll that we have to start paying attention to, and not just paying attention to in terms of we need to ban Instagram, but in terms of telling each individual person, you have to start thinking of of whether or not this is good for you. Yeah, and Instagram truly would tell you that because they're owned by Facebook. It's the same scientists and people, so they would have exactly the same bullshit study like they have about Facebook. I think I do not necessarily have a brain that can handle the social media stress very well. I, in particular, I think I will get wound up at night. Like I'm sideshow Bob stepping on the rake of looking at social media late at (laughs) night before I sleep. Like I will know it will probably get me wound up and make it harder to sleep. I will look at it anyway, and then I will be wound up. And I will do that night after night, and it's not a good thing. And I think if I weren't in comedy, I would probably not have very many of these platforms. I'm not a particularly performative person about like my general life. I like to perform art and not just what I'm up to during the day. I don't know. I, I wonder how many people that same way. I think I've found that this professional attitude towards social media is weirdly common. I every day wish I could turn off. I have a Twitter. I have a Facebook account. I do not have an Instagram. I have to have them professionally. I, I have to have them. I don't think it's a net positive in my life. Like I can get on there and read three or four tweets from people I know or from comedians I like and read funny jokes or see funny memes that they're sharing. But it's not more than a few minutes that I run into somebody who is sharing some outrageous quote from somebody on the alt-right or some terrible link from Breitbart, and they're sharing it to rebut it because I'm in a bubble. But they're sharing an article that has been carefully crafted to make you as angry as possible. Yeah. Because that's how the internet economy works. I'm someone who has anger management problems. I'm someone who doesn't manage it very well. And it's very clear to me what I'm doing. People not familiar, those of us with anger management issues, we get a high from being angry. You can measure it. It releases all of these chemicals in the brain that because the fight or flight response rewards you for getting excited it's you know people there are people get addicted to combat for that same reason they they keep going back into war zones because they get addicted to it and so for someone like me who that's clearly a vice that i like being outraged and i like getting in fights with people and twitter will just feed me that all day long it'll give me as much of that as i want if i for some reason got a different job or i didn't have to have that and these days i can't imagine what that job would even be like if i was servicing the amish or something like what what job can you have where you don't have to worry about your if you're a professional where you don't have to worry about your your social media presence every day i think about i wish i could turn it off but am i lying about that (laughs) do i mean that if i if i really did drop out of the public eye completely would i 
or would I find myself unable to get away from it? I don't know. I think you do mean it because I think you are right about, especially that SmackDown culture on Twitter, it really does affect the brain that way. And I keep thinking that Twitter, especially because there's a lot of people on it who I, I've been using it for years. And so there are people who I followed because they're comedians. And then since then they have become people who get in fights on Twitter. Like they don't really do comedy anymore on Twitter. And Twitter is, especially in this political climate, it's basically the dumbest war. It's a thing where everyone (laughs) feels like there's some sort of soldier in some sort of conflict but there is never any progress ever made. No one has their mind changed by the replies. No one advances or detracts society materially there. It's just this weird, dumb thing that everyone thinks they're a foot soldier in. It's like if war was completely glory and honor free. It's the stupidest draft in the world has required me to come online and use the might of my followers to fight these people. No, it hasn't. It's just, it's this weird suck hole that I shouldn't put my time into. It's like a placebo war. It's something to you can feel like you did something, like you did your part. And you can even retweet the occasional, be sure to vote tomorrow. It's like, hey, who knows? Maybe, maybe my retweet made someone go vote. It would not nearly to the degree if I actually went out and volunteered and helped register people, which, you know, every campaign badly, badly needs those volunteers on the ground. Yeah, I did that RT this weekend. It was weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it feels it feels great yeah. in the moment. But but there has to be some part of your brain because, again, that's taxing. Do you have only so much of yourself you can give to the world, to your friends, to your family, to your job, to yourself? That you're giving a piece of yourself to Twitter and you're trying to justify it as like, well, it's I'm expressing myself or, well, I'm out here trying to, you know, there's like a, a, a battle in the zeitgeist for what ideas succeed. And when I see a racist tweeting, I have to rebut that. And that helps fight the war on racism. But it's never going away because it's the president's on here now. And it's like this is now in the stat. This is now going to be in history books. History books 200 years from now are going to mention Twitter prominently when talking about this era. Support for today's show comes from Pro Flowers. Pro Flowers and Sherry's Berries have teamed up to help you really impress your Valentine this year with their perfectly paired collection. Go ahead and think inside the box this Valentine's Day, because this really is a one-of-a-kind gift. Your flowers and dipped strawberries will arrive together in a beautifully, specially designed box that will keep your flowers fresh and your berries cold. Guaranteed! Right now, our listeners can save 20% on any one of their perfectly paired combinations or any other gift over $29 with our promo code CRACKED. That's the promo code, CRACKED. And let me tell you, one of the best things about getting a fun gift in the mail is fun packaging, novel structuring of the box. And I don't know how they did it, but the flowers come out fresh. The berries come out cold. How does one box contain so many worlds? So hurry and order today. Valentine's Day is next week, and there's only one way to get 20% off a perfectly paired gift over $29, featuring beautiful blooms from Pro Flowers and freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry's Berries all at once. Visit proflowers.com today and enter our code CRACKED at checkout. That's proflowers.com, code CRACKED. Support for today's show comes from Casper, the folks who keep me sleeping comfy. They are a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. 
With three mattress models, the Original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Comfortable like me. I sleep on a Casper mattress myself. And don't I sound rested? It's because I am. It was very, very, very easy to set up. I can't express that enough. The box just opens up like a, a science fiction. It's great. I set it up, and I've been sleeping on it ever since, and just feeling very good. I'm also a tall guy. Not everybody knows that about me. It's probably not that easy to hear, but I'm relatively tall. And their mattresses are even built for people like me, which is really refreshing. But they're also built for people like everybody. That includes you. And you can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash cracked and using cracked at checkout. That's casper.com slash cracked. Offer code cracked for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. Looking at other stressors too, uh, this one's a little bit related, but you brought up loneliness as another thing that is something we really underrate as a mental health issue because it's also a actually dangerous for your health issue. It's a, a real problem for people. Yeah, the numbers are astonishing. Yeah, loneliness, it's as important a risk factor for early death as obesity and smoking. Right. But when have you ever seen that in the culture, you know, we hate fat people. Like obesity has got as much social pressure going against it as anything. We relentlessly mock those people. We hear endless campaigns about childhood obesity and of course, smoking, you know, we've done a good job of purging, purging that from society. You know, we've actually, the rates of smokers have dropped dramatically in the last 30 years. We've set up our taxes and economy to punish smoking. It's like, no, if you want to smoke and you're in a city, you need to pay more taxes than basically anyone for any service. You need to do that. But the fact that loneliness, like not having a social network is just as dangerous, makes perfect sense when you think about it. But it is not paid attention to as a risk factor nearly as much. There's a bunch of reasons for it, but a lot of it has to be a lifestyle where you just don't come into face-to-face -face contact with people as much. A lot of those Instagram followers are not part of your social network. They're not going to help you move. Right. They're not going to be there like if you're physically sick and, I, you know, like they will be happy if you post on Instagram, I'm really sick. They will be happy to say, feel better, but they're not going to come to your house and bring you medicine. They're not going to come to your house and hold your hair back while you throw up in the toilet. All the people out there who've made friends across the world on, on Facebook, you know, again, all of my social circle is on the Internet. I'm not crapping on that and saying, well, those aren't your real friends. I'm saying as a practical matter, it's different. It's a different type of friend. They, they probably yeah. cannot come bail you out of jail. They can't come help you move. For most of those people who you know in that capacity, you are still playing a character to a degree. You're still filtering your interactions over text, photos, you're, you're picking out your pose in the photos, you're 
carefully choosing your words, where someone who knows you in person, all of these unguarded moments, all of these bad days, the way you look when you just come out of bed, the way you look when you've got a cold, the way you talk when you're in a really horrible mood, when you get to know the whole person, including the awful parts, when they know when they know what you smell like when you don't bathe for too long, you become a real person. Someone you only know through a multiplayer game. Like you can treasure those relationships and that's great. I have many just like that. It's not the same thing. So when it comes yeah. time to the type of social circle that extends your life, having people around you who can help you as you get older, who can be there to do these practical things and have that kind of interaction that keeps you engaged, that's what we lose. I don't know if people realize this, but the big thing in business is that millennials don't like face-to-face interaction. So if you want to market to millennials, you need to establish a business that doesn't require that. This is one of the big movements toward like automation at fast food restaurants, like ordering from a screen instead of talking to a person. One of the things they found is that customers, younger customers, prefer it. They prefer to order at a kiosk rather than talking to a person. Mm-hmm. They prefer to get their groceries delivered from Grubhub or whatever the services are called where they'll, they'll bring them to your door. They prefer to have a, a pizza delivered rather than go there. The movie theaters are finding out the hard way that they don't like going out and sitting in a crowd to watch a movie. They'd rather watch it at home. Even if it means waiting for six months to watch it, they prefer to wait mainly to avoid the social interaction because face-to-face, you know, the interaction is not at arm's length the way it is on social media where you get to choose when you post what you say and when and how you present it. A face-to-face interaction, you don't have control over it because you're both there in the moment. You can't pause it or, or whatever. So it feels like there's a feedback loop of it feels in the moment easier to avoid face-to-face interactions and it feels in the moment more pleasurable to post on Instagram and get that instant feedback. Long-term, there's evidence that not having an in-real-life social circle is a killer. It feels like somebody should be paying attention to that. And the the kind of food parallel we've been doing across the show so far, it really, really fits here. Like it's doing the thing where you don't deal with people face-to-face, it's sort of like a poor diet where it feels good in the moment often and then is bad for you down the line. Like when we talk about loneliness being bad for health, like you said, it's as important a risk factor as obesity and smoking. There have been a lot of studies mainly trying to look at cognitive diseases but finding that loneliness accelerates them a great deal. And there's also a meta-analytic study by researchers from BYU and UNC And so they looked at 148 different studies and did a meta-analysis of all of them and found that you have about a 50% increased likelihood of survival in life if you have stronger social relationships. So that's incredibly important to just living longer, like that time you're saving by ordering your food at a kiosk and not dealing with the employees. It's not a one-to-one thing where that's making your life shorter necessarily, but that kind of behavior all of the time, year after year, day after day, is not good for you down the line. Well, and because social interaction is something you have to practice and get good at, you know, and it's something we talk about where it causes cognitive decline if you don't have a social circle, your brain, again, is an engine designed to socialize. 
with other members of the tribe. All of those things in terms of learning to read mannerisms, learning to, you know, to, to detect the mood of a room, that stuff is, you, you don't come out of the womb knowing how to do it. You come out of the womb with the ability to learn it. But right. this is why going to school and interacting with other kids is such a big thing. I've said on this podcast that the biggest benefit I got out of going to college was not anything I learned in the classes, of which I barely remember any of it. It was interacting for the first time, leaving that small town and interacting with a bunch of kids from all over the country and, in fact, all over the world, meeting my first minorities, meeting the first non-heterosexual, openly non-heterosexual people in my life was when I went to college. That was my how to be a human being school, not my how to learn how to do journalism school, because most of that I had to kind of learn the hard way later by making mistakes. <laughs> but I completely understand if the listener is confused, like what possible value to you does it have to take the bus? What possible value does it have to go stand in line at a movie theater? And But all of those annoyances, dealing with strangers, knowing how to be in a room full of strangers, knowing how to have like a tense social interaction with a customer service person when you're trying to get something done, that's stuff you have to learn how to do. It's a skill. And once upon a time, you made your friends by running into them. They happened to sit next to you in class. They happened to live on your block. Like, you ran into them in real life. It would feel like a better way to do it the way you're doing it now, where if we're both into Minecraft... I go play Minecraft and I meet other people playing Minecraft. It's like, well, see, I, I, we automatically know we've got something in common. That sounds good. <laughs> the downside is, is that once upon a time you were forced to interact with people you had nothing in common with and right. you learned about them. You could not filter your friends. Like I've met all of my friends on a message board. We're all on a message board doing like erotic uh, Sonic the Hedgehog fan art, and I'm now a big member of the erotic Sonic the Hedgehog fan art community. That's great <laughs> that you found your. That's great that you found your people, but by by filtering it down to like a shared interest like that, the breadth of the type of people you interact with, and different personalities from you, and different values from you, there is an objective benefit to being forced against your will to interact with people who aren't like you, who have different temperaments from you. You get to see different ways different people react. Like the jokes that people thought were hilarious in your fan art group don't play so well at church. <laughs> That's a positive. You, you have gone out of your bubble and you were forced to go to a thing you found miserable, whether it's a church or something your parents dragged you to or just in class being forced to sit next to, to a kid in alphabetical order and realize, oh, not everybody likes those jokes. Different people tell different jokes. A lot of the problems we associate with modern culture right now in terms of like how a bunch of kids can all like suddenly think like Nazis are cool is because today 
they can put themselves in a situation online where they only talk to other kids who think Nazis are cool. Where once upon a time, if you were forced to go out in public and constantly interact with strangers, you would realize, oh, I've been going out and about all day long and have not run into a single Nazi. It turns out this is actually a fringe (laughs) thinking. This is a fringe, unpopular, weird way to think. It doesn't mean you have to stop thinking it. I'm not trying to tell a Nazi how to live their life, but I would like them to consider the fact that the rest of us, there's a reason the rest of us have rejected their their thing, whatever it is. You, You have a control over your interactions that, again, it feels great in the moment to have everybody laugh at your racist joke, but feels horrible in the moment to have a room full of people tell you you're terrible. But long term... Trust me, that second one is better. It's better to learn that, oh, that this is actually bad out in the world. I feel like there's a weird parallel version of that experience, too, with stand-up comedy, because I've done some of it, and so I've just had times where I am doing jokes for a room of people, and I know that in the future, when I ever need to do like a speech at a wedding or something, I have some skills that cross over and I have some readiness for it. And then a lot of times when you'll see someone doing a speech at a wedding or an event or something like that, they're doing like their first public speaking and they go about it a lot differently because they have like no context for how that works. I don't know, this might be a little of a stretch, but it feels like a parallel to someone who's only been a Nazi online finally talking to humans and being like, Oh right! The oh oh this is a completely different scene. Like oh I see, uh, like actual life. It's a very different thing. I gotta like adjust for that. Not just that, but there's a complete 180 in the reaction because the Nazi on Twitter and Twitter is full of it's either actual Nazis or it's teenagers who just notice that that gets a ton of attention, right? Because yeah. to them, a bunch of angry rebuttals is better than retweets because it's they got a reaction, right? That's a reaction means you matter. That's validation too. When, and in that specific scene, a few of them are robots. A few of them aren't even actual people. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but But that's a great point. The robots are programmed to take advantage of that. They're programmed to retweet and give that racist kid the dopamine rush. Because they know that's what the racist kid is looking for. So the bots will retweet it to spread it around. It's taking advantage of that, of the brain biology. It's actually evil genius, really, if you (laughs) think about it. Because they've learned how this all works. But if you take that kid who makes the racist joke on Twitter and sees how triggered all the libs are, you know, that kid gets like a pleasurable dopamine rush because he's dunked on the, the triggered libs, right? Like he's won. He's he's ruined their day. He has fought his battle in the culture war yes. and won a victory. They're very cucked. They, yes, exactly. Yeah, he has upset a bunch of <laughs> cucks, a bunch of triggered cucks. But take that same kid, set him for a room for a while in a room with some minority he would normally make jokes about, a black person, a Muslim, whatever. For an hour. Let them spend an hour together. And then make him tell the same joke to that person's face, looking them directly in their eyes. Mm -hmm. And the feeling he will get will be 100% the opposite. Assuming he's not a sociopath, which most of them are not. He'll get like a sick feeling. Because the actual human tribal reaction to 
negative response from another human now works because you can see their face. Right. You're sharing a room with them. That person is a real physical organism sitting in front of you. That person's like you. They're just as human as you are because you can see them. It's not just, if you're just on Twitter, it's easy to see it as like a game. Because like in a video game, you're not killing people. You're just killing pixels. It's just shapes on the screen. You're making go away to make your score go up. And so on Twitter, it's easy to see it the same way. The black person you're making the joke about is not a real person. It's just an image on the screen you're using to make your score go up. It's it's a it's a game. Then suddenly that person's in front of you. It's not a game anymore. It's real life. That to me is fascinating. That we've built software that can flip that reaction on its head. That can make cruelty feel good by removing it a few steps and dehumanizing the other end of it in a way that if you made that person leave the house and get a job or go to school where they actually are in contact with minorities every day, doing, you know, working with them, working side by side, being forced to cooperate on a task, it would be completely different. Yeah, we've even seen that, I think, with a few times that journalists have said like, oh, why don't I look at Trump country? Why don't I look at the people in it? And you'll often find people who they're like working some sort of blue collar job and have coworkers of different races and, and different ethnicities, and they get along great. And because the people think, well, you know, these are excellent friends of mine and I've met Tom and Tom is awesome, you know, and then at the same time, they'll be relatively supportive of a candidate who's operating on racial resentments. And it's it's just filed differently because the face to face of dealing with Tom. Oh, Tom's great. I really like Tom. And then the not face to face of what are the politicians I'm going to support. It's a totally different experience and vibe. Yeah, I cannot help but feel like ultimately there's still a social isolation effect even among that person because there are families that have stopped speaking to each other since the election. There are friends that have stopped interacting with each other because you've been trained to talk about these subjects in a way that is supposed to be maximizing how much you've triggered the cucks and not... (laughs) Like actually discussing it with a person is just that, you know, you're sharing some image that it's making the argument in a way that is the least convincing, but the most outrageous as possible. So one that I saw shared on Facebook was like a photo of like a dead soldier in a coffin with like a flag draped over it. It's like, you remember this the next time you you kneel during the anthem. It's like. Whoever made that, not for one second did they think that would convince anyone. It's only shared by people who think this will trigger the libtards. That's right. it. It's only to stimulate and get get this. Us libtards love it because you posted it. We got angry and got a huge dopamine rush from the anger. And then we all shared it and made snide comments among each other about how horrible you are. Yeah, it's our favorite trigger. It worked out. We love it. Yeah, it worked out (laughs) great for everybody. We all got a dopamine, a a quick dopamine hit of the conflict and the outrage 
and you got the sense of triumph, like, aha, we've done it, we've dunked on this this idiot. And then it made all of us a little worse than we were a minute earlier in yeah. the long term. I am convinced of that. I, as of right now, do not have science that can back up whether or not outrage culture or whether or not feeling outrage once every minute for 18 hours out of a day is healthy for you. I believe it is an easy case to make that it is not. As of right now, I cannot say that it takes seven years off your life. Like with cigarettes, we've got it down to every cigarette you smoke, like you're going to die eight minutes earlier. I cannot make that case yet. I believe one day we will be able to say that. Yeah, and I'm sure the number will be uh, spooky. You also mentioned in general that there's a lot of social pressure on us to have poor mental health habits in general. And I think one of the examples was that we're pressured to not have a subdued reaction to things we disagree with. We're pressured to very outwardly and very actively be upset by them, even though it's it's probably a skill of a healthy person to let some stuff go in the moment and and not always be at whatever the top DEFCON is. I forget how the scale works. Uh, whatever the top DEFCON is for things we come across that we disagree with. Even movies cannot figure out whether or not DEFCON 1 or DEFCON 5 is the bad one. <laughs> but yeah, it, because even earlier I mentioned the hypothetical example of a video of a child being bullied and this going viral on social media. And I think people listening probably were like, oh, well, how can you not be upset by that? Like how cold hearted, so you're just not supposed to care? It's like, if you want me to do something to help bullying, if you want me to vote for an initiative, I'll vote for it. If you want me to donate money to the cause, I'll donate money. If you want me to do something that will actually help that child, I'll do it. That's not what you're asking me to do because the stuff I see shared is from years ago. The stuff I see shared is so stripped of context. There's no call to action. Go on Reddit. Like there's the entire rage subreddits where it'll be just a photo of someone on the subway and everyone is standing, but one gross 20-year-old woman is sitting in her seat next to her is full of her stuff, her bag and her shopping, and old people are having to stand because she has her shopping in the seat. And you're supposed to be outraged by that. Here's another photo right below it of someone who has parked badly. They've parked in a way, they've got an SUV and their parking way is taking up three slots in a full parking lot, probably at Trader Joe's. <laughs> that's And the parking lot is now chaos because this selfish bastard has taken up three parking spots. It's like, I don't know where this is. Right. That person, <laughs> this photo is from five years ago. They're not still parked there. What, what does this do for the world for me to be upset about it? And yes, I put the video of the bully kid or of the, there's entire videos of abused animals, somebody abusing an animal. Can you believe these scumbags killing this kitten? It's like, okay, yeah, animal abuse is terrible. If you want me to pass a law or if you've got a politician running to pass better laws for that, I'll vote for them. But my being upset does not help that animal or that child or that person looking for a parking space at all. And the biggest myth of 2018 right now is the idea that your rage actually helps somebody because it doesn't if it's not translated into some kind of useful action beyond you replying or retweeting or whatever. 
I think I've gotten a little bit better at that particular thing in in the past few months when there have been causes that I think are really important. And I keep seeing stories about how the causes are losing or under fire, you know? And so I've gotten in the habit of, okay, I'm going to set up a recurring monthly donation to an organization that works on this cause. And I'm going to take a step back from the cause. I'm going to spend less time thinking about it all the time because I've, I've done the actionable thing I can do. And also that's the action. Like I, I'll watch out if there's any other huge actions I can possibly take, but I need to parcel out the brain space and energy and ability to be upset that I've got because otherwise I'm going to explode and no one wins if I explode. Right. But all of the social pressure is going the other direction. And the phrase is like, well, if, if you're not upset, you're not paying attention. It's yeah, like yeah. because we equate somebody who is happy or is happy with their own life with someone who's ignorant. And so if you're not in a constant state of rage and making yourself miserable, like you owe it to the miserable people in the world. You owe it to the oppressed people to yourself be miserable. And it's like, I don't even think they want that. I think they want to not be oppressed anymore. I I think they want jobs. I don't think knowing (laughs) that this, this 43 year old white guy is miserable on my behalf I don't think that fixes their problem at all. If they need a law changed, if they need, you know, these issues with integration and and all that, like they, they need a practical thing. Somebody who's been deported after living in the country for 30 years, they need to not be deported. They don't need me to be sad about them being deported unless that sadness, you know, results in me voting for somebody who will change that law. But to say, you know, if I post on social media, like everything's going great, you know, somebody invariably is going to come back. It's like, well, it's not going so great for you know, all the <laughs> Haitian immigrants were just ex- expelled from this country. It's like, I, I agree, but, you know, I, I will do what I can to help that situation, but I'm not, I'm still in a good mood. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm still in a good mood, even though there was an earthquake that devastated this country or that. It's okay to be happy. there was never a state of the species when everything was pretty much fine there were no newspapers that came out like in 1956 it was like hey it's well you know everything's pretty much everything's running great right now uh you know it's really nothing happened in the world it's all pretty much going according to plan thank you that never that's never happened you don't have to unplug from the world but the social pressure that says that you're just a boring person if you if you if you insist on like a healthy diet if you kind of you know you you talk to people about how you get up and do yoga every morning and they look at you like you're a weird hippie type person like you're just this disconnected nut job it's like well there's almost people being proud of what a mess they are uh, because otherwise yeah. you're just boring and you're a zombie and you're just, you know, you're not, you know, if you're interesting, then you're a brooding, uh, just a disaster of a, of a person <laughs> on a mental health level. That's weird that we pressure each other into being anxious. It's weird that in some circles it's kind of fashionable to be mentally ill where people will, people who are just kind of tidy will insist that they're OCD. Oh yeah, sure. 
like, well, I'm really OCD about, about keeping my closet in order. You know, I've got to have all my stuff arranged by color. It's like, well, I don't think that's OCD. I think that's just knowing where your shirts are. Or somebody who's like, oh, man, I'm so ADHD. Sometimes I look at another thing when I was doing a thing before that. I was like, no, you're just you're distractible sometimes, man. Like other people are ADHD. That's an actual thing. Yeah. And they can't they can't function without medication. They can't do <laughs> right. their jobs. You just yeah, it's not that's not you that the world is sometimes boring. Like that's just kind of uh, but it's almost cooler to say. I'm just a, I'm just a mess, you know, or, or I like, I'm glad people can talk about social anxiety. I'm glad that people can voice that, but not everybody seems to grasp that everyone feels social anxiety in different situations because right. many situations are socially legitimately dangerous. <laughs> like you can do a social situation wrong in a way that will harm your life. That anxiety is, you know, the people who, you know, need to be medicated for it are the ones that like can't leave the house. Like, like they get, you know, they will get a debilitating physical illness sometimes by interacting with other human beings, but saying, Oh, I get anxious at a party. It's like, well, yeah, you're making a first impression on like 25 people. Yes. That's a momentous thing you're doing. You know, lots of people get anxious in those situations. That's normal and it's okay. It, it's not, you're not confessing to an illness. That's just you doing something you don't normally do. You're more relatable or something if you yeah. claim it's an illness. Like if you portray it as, oh no, I'm I'm a mess. Yeah, and that and that sort of social maybe not push against, but that social idea that it's lame to be fine. It's really, really toxic, I think. Like like I the pop culture thing I thought of as you were talking about it is one of the biggest books and movies of the last 30 years, which is Fight Club. Like he has a perfectly nice apartment and is very, very upset about it. He's like, if only I could be in a basement hitting people, you know, ah, that would be it. That would be the thing for me. And I mean, maybe, you know, uh, maybe, maybe getting out and doing something is good for you. And maybe you can also be happy with like sitting on your couch. That's a thing too. It's not like a disaster if you're doing okay. We could do an entire episode about Fight Club. Which is about this issue because this was it was ahead of its time in the sense that it, it if it had been made today <laughs> they would frequently mention Instagram and things like that right yeah because the whole beginning of the movie is about him like his apartment looks the way it does because that's how it is in the catalog like the whole idea is that he's been pressured to live a lifestyle based on what he's been told to live and then he just works all the time and doesn't you know, the, the normal human things you've evolved to like doing and the movie uses fighting, but you could substitute a lot of things. And the whole thing with like, he has to go to the cancer support groups because that's the only place he can hear people being genuine in how they talk. People really listen to you instead of just waiting to talk. He's talking about like, a society where you're forced to present yourself in a certain way, where finally when yeah. he's in a room full of dying people who have nothing to lose, they can just sit there and cry about their, their marriage, about what they've lost, about their mortality. They can just sit there and openly, and he needed that. He needed to, because the world had taught him it's not cool to do that. It, that's not the, the front you put up. Strangely, <laughs> People remember the middle part of the movie where he finds his salvation in 
this fighting club and then it escalates to this this mission to like bring down the whole system they usually stop the film before the last part where they ex- carefully explain why all of that is stupid <laughs> that tyler told these men i if you come follow me i will help you find your manhood and your individuality all, all of the things that society represses, society has taken away your masculinity, society has taken away your, your personality and your individuality. If you come follow me, I will show you the way. And then what happens to them once they join Tyler's group? He makes them all dress the same. Yeah. They lose their names. They get the same haircut. And they all answer to him. So all he did was change it on a very superficial level. Instead of answering to Ikea's idea of what your lifestyle should look like, you're now answering to Tyler's idea of what your lifestyle should look like. Right. Instead of reciting a slogan in an ad you saw, you're now reciting a chant that Tyler taught you. These men were not ready to actually be men. They were not ready to be responsible, capable, organized, you know, taking care of themselves they only wanted the superficial change of, oh, we're dressing different. We are answering to a different master. But they were exactly as enslaved. And that's what he finally figured out at the end. That everything he right. thought would set him free was was BS. It was all stupid. And, and it all falls apart at the end. The people stopped the movie before that and they just quote, the early part of the movie when it's the stuff that later gets refuted. I've never actually read the book. I feel like there's a problem with the medium of film where fighting looks cool, kind of no matter how you do it. And so people are just really taken with the fight club. It just looks awesome. And it's handsome Brad Pitt fighting people. Like they, they're just way into it. Uh, but like you say, they're missing the entire satire. They're, it's going right over their heads. And there's a lot more we could get into as well. There's endless ways our our culture is kind of coming after us. Um, As far as what we can do actionably in the future, I think we've already covered a few things, which is mainly mainly to be cognizant of ourselves and cognizant of our brain as an organ that, unlike lots of our organs, does not uh, throw up a lot of red flags when things are going poorly. I think we've done a much better job recently as a society of making people aware of mental illness once it occurs. Sure. I think we've gotten good at teaching people, here's the warning signs of depression. They show up in pop culture. They show up in education now. That's all great. What I'm talking about is prevention. The same as you try to learn about what food is good for you or what habits are good for you. If you're into fitness, like you've no doubt read about what type of yoga is actually safe or is beneficial or whatever. I think there has to be to start with a culture of looking at mental health the same way before you get sick, not saying, how do I know I've got the depression, but saying, how do I not get there and really reading what you can and really tracking your own habits in terms of, how much of the day are you spending on things that are not beneficial to your happiness, that that feels good in a way that deep down you know is not actually good, where it's getting a thrill from conflict or from outrage or from just 
schadenfreude where you're like celebrating that something bad has happened to somebody else when i was a kid like being raised in a very religious household there was a lot of you shouldn't watch these movies it's polluting your brain or you shouldn't read porn that's going to pollute your brain and i think we have an attitude that rejects that because we think of it as like puritanical like somebody wants to censor those things what I'm saying is you have to separate this from censorship. This is not about anyone wanting to take away your Instagram. This is not about anyone wanting to take away your YouTube or anything. Right. It's about you having to look at it in kind of the same way that your brain is something that can be polluted. Your mind, your soul, your you, you your personality is something that can be polluted and what you put into it does have an effect. And I think that deep down, you don't have to be told which of that stuff is harmful. I think you know. I think you yeah. know that if you spend hours following some drama between two strangers, just because it's fun to see the drama play out, it's fun to see people get mad at each other, I think you know that that's not good for you. I would just ask that you start thinking in those terms and start monitoring it with that in mind. Yeah, truly. I, a lot of this stuff I am realizing as we talked about it, that anything I've learned about these things in life did not come from a structure or system that existed for that. Like it's just been interpersonal relationships where the person taught me a lesson or like I sought out information out. There's no school or structure or part of society that like really actively teaches a lot of people this stuff or encourages people to think about it. And like you say, I think people are wise enough to figure it out once they have it on their minds and are cognizant of it. I really think so. And I think that the things that people used to do, the in-person social clubs they used to form, whether it was a bowling league or whatever it is you like to do for fun, and they used to have like these rotary clubs and yeah. whatever, these men's clubs or whatever, there was a reason for that stuff. Finding a reason to go out and interact with people in the world, it is known to be healthy. Yeah. It, it just is. It, it's not, that's not a controversial statement. Meeting people, dealing with them in real life, it is taxing. Most of us would prefer not to do it. If given the option, it benefits you. It benefits your, your health and your mental health. That is one thing that, again, I think all of the pressure and all of the currents of society are pushing the other way against. I would say, make yourself get out and interact. I don't do it, but I suspect <laughs> it would it would be better. I know I, I know for a fact that's one of the worst things I do. Well, and, and yeah, being aware of it is helpful. And we are starting to already be aware of once you have this mental health problem, work on it. The next step is probably to start to figure out prevention for them. And I think of history in general, like we're not that many decades uh, after the start of a lot of smart theories about physical health, like like germ theory and eating properly and basic principles that have drastically improved our physical health as a culture. There's a Kurt Vonnegut quote at the end of the book, Dead I Dick, where he says that we're in the dark ages. The dark ages never ended. In a lot of ways, we're still figuring this stuff out. And we're kind of, I think we're starting to come out of the dark ages of mental health. We're like starting to figure out the equivalent of germ theory for making our brains work. And, uh, you know, good for us. Let's stay in the lab. Let's uh, let's keep innovating. In the meantime, for you, the listener, this is not an issue for the world. This is you. 
you personally, like what you do tomorrow, like whether or not the world figures out mental health in the near term, you need to have an eye on what what's helping and what's not. That's all. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin for always being the best. Ain't nobody like him. And let's go on into our footnotes, where you'll find a lot of Jason's writing. One of my favorite pieces he's ever done is called Seven Creepy Ways Corporations Are Turning You Into an Addict. He picks out how the drug approach is used by every business in every industry, and he uh, sort of changed how I see the world with that realization. It's really cool. Also, I really, really love that article we're footnoting from the Daily Beast about Snapchat. It's, it's fascinating whether or not you use that service, because Snapchat is a fun way to chat with your friends and a kind of ridiculous way to consume brands, yet they are scrambling to make it both things, and the fallout of that is the story. It ought to be a movie. It could be the social network plus software that makes your face look like a dog. Right? What a thing. Oscars and, and fun jokes. Anyhow, a few more things about the Cracked Podcast. You can see my face, dog filter free, live at our live Cracked Podcast this coming Saturday, February 10th at 7 p.m. at UCB Sunset in L.A. And we're doing a movie spectacular about movies with secretly terrifying plots and characters. Seemingly regular movies that have an insane nightmare thing lurking in them. And I don't mean the movie called The Thing. I mean movies like Liar Liar, the Jim Carrey comedy where Jim Carrey's son is a god. I mean the James Bond movie where voodoo death magic is real. I mean the Indiana Jones franchise where every magic and religion is real. Me and the panel are going to have a great time getting into it. I will be joined by Dan Hopper, Amy Nicholson, and Dave Schilling because I am the luckiest. And we got a ticket link in the food notes. Tickets are only 7 bucks, so that's a heck of a fun night for the price of half a movie ticket, third of a movie ticket. Where are they at? I love doing those live shows. We make them interactive. I'd love to be interactive with you there because I'm friendly and stuff. Let's do it. Anyway, let's live in the moment of this episode because as far as this episode goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Cody Scully and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. I mean... Okay, sure, we explicitly told you not to be angry on social media on this episode. That's just kind of what I say at the end. Do do whatever's good for you. If something that's good for you is finding me on Twitter, I'm under the name at Alex Schmitty, and I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. How about that? Take care of your brains. Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.